If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. Just a quick note, as I've mentioned, I will be in Manchester and London for the Generation Y. They walk among us meetups in early July. And from the date of this recording, it's a month or so away. So I'm extremely excited. Tickets, as I understand it, are sold out. So if you're planning on being there, let me know so I can say hi. And then I will also be at the True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th in Chicago. There's going to be a ton of podcasters there, and there are still tickets available. So check out the website, tcpf2019.com, for more information. But with those two quick things out of the way, let's get into the episode. Bellevue is a sleepy, small town with a population of less than 3,000 people in the middle of the state of Idaho. Around 6.30 a.m. on September 2nd, the sleepy summer morning was broken by the frantic screaming from 16-year-old Sarah Johnson. Sarah was pleading for help, and neighbors emerged from their houses to investigate the source of the commotion. She told them that she heard gunshots inside of her house, and that both of her parents, Alan and Diane, had been murdered. Alan and Diane Johnson were a typical middle-class couple who lived in Bellevue, Idaho, which is located just two hours from the state capital of Boise. The pair were married in 1983, and Alan adopted Diane's son from a previous relationship. His name is Matt, and he was just a toddler at the time of the marriage. They completed their family with the arrival of daughter Sarah Marie four years later in 1987. The family lived a seemingly idyllic life. Alan co-owned a landscaping business, and Diane worked at a medical clinic and then later for a collections firm. 
They owned a beautiful home on two acres of land, complete with a guest house. Allen was well known in the southern Idaho area for his trap shooting, and he was an avid outdoorsman. Their son Matt attended college in Moscow, Idaho, and their daughter Sarah was on the volleyball team at her high school. All was quiet, and the family appeared happy. In the summer of 2003, Sarah began dating a man who was three years older than her. Bruno Santos Dominguez was 19, and the pair met at Wood River High School, which they both attended. Bruno was well known to law enforcement due to several instances of drug-related arrests. The pair had been dating for three months, but Sarah's parents had only recently found out about the relationship. They did not approve of their daughter dating someone who was not only so much older than her, but someone who had also had multiple run-ins with the police. Alan and Diane told Sarah that she was forbidden from seeing Bruno, but she, as many teenagers sometimes do, ignored her parents and continued to see him. In mid-August, the Johnsons hosted a family wedding at their home. Sarah asked for Bruno to be allowed as her date, a request which was denied by her parents. This decision, which should not have been a surprise, upset Sarah quite a bit. She made her feelings about the decision well-known, and she pouted the whole weekend. A few weeks after the family wedding in late August, Sarah started wearing a ring on her ring finger. She told friends that she and Bruno were engaged, but since Sarah had a history of lying, they didn't know whether they should believe her or not. On August 29th, Sarah spent the night with Bruno after telling her parents that she was with a friend. The next day, when they found out where their daughter really spent the night, they were furious. Sarah's Aunt Linda and Uncle Jim were staying with the Johnsons at the time, and they recalled this particular morning. Jim even went with Alan to Bruno's family apartment to confront Sarah and Bruno. An argument ensued, and Sarah announced her engagement to Bruno during the heated exchange. Alan and Diane's response to the news was to threaten to report Bruno to police for statutory rape. Statutory rape is when there is consensual sex between two parties, but one is under the age of consent. The age of consent laws vary by state, and the age of consent in Idaho is 18, and anyone over 18 who had sex with a 16- or 17-year-old could be charged with statutory rape. Furthermore, in Idaho, if the male participant is three years older than the female participant, the male could be charged with rape instead of just statutory rape. Idaho is one of the few states who has laws that are dependent on the ages of the male and female participants rather than just a blanket law. After the argument, Sarah was grounded and her driving privileges were revoked. Alan and Diane hoped that this would put a stop to Sarah seeing Bruno since he wasn't allowed in their home and Sarah was not allowed to leave and had no independent method of transportation. Jim and Linda returned as it was Labor Day weekend and they were celebrating at the house. 
Sarah was reportedly in a bad mood the entire weekend and was in and out of the guest house saying that she was studying in there. The guest house was actually an apartment located over the garage. The Johnsons would still have access to the garage portion of the building. On the 1st of September, Diane called her son Matt. Matt was 22 and away at college, and Diane filled Matt in on the recent events and cried to her son about how embarrassed she felt by Sarah's attitude towards her and Alan regarding the relationship with Bruno. After they hung up, Sarah spoke to her brother. He would later say that he was surprised how well she was taking the punishment from her parents. However, some of her comments did strike Matt as strange. He later said Sarah said, quote, she knew what they were up to, and Matt considered calling his mother back to tell her about the comment, but brushed it off and never ended up mentioning it. The next morning was the Tuesday after Labor Day, and everyone was getting back into their usual routines. Diane was still asleep in the master bedroom of the Bellevue home, while Alan was already in the shower getting ready for work. Then three shots were fired inside the house. Immediately after the shots rang out, Sarah emerged from the house, screaming for help. Her parents, she frantically told neighbors, had been shot and killed. She said that she didn't see the shooter, but she heard the shots through their closed bedroom door and ran for help. Police responded quickly and entered the home. In the master bedroom, they found 52-year-old Diane where she had been sleeping in her bed. She had been shot once in the head, and the blast left her significantly disfigured. 46-year-old Alan was found in the master bedroom as well, still wet from the shower with a bullet wound in his chest. The shower was still running in the bathroom. Crime scene photos show a blood-soaked bath mat and footprints that indicate that Alan was shot there and then staggered into the bedroom where he collapsed and died. Blood, hair, and tissue was found on the floor, walls, ceiling, and furniture in the bedroom and bathroom. Part of Diane's skull was later found in the hallway where it was projected from the force of the gunshot. Large knives were placed at the end of the bed by the killer, however, they were not used in the murder. Sarah was immediately questioned by police. She was the only other person home and would be the most valuable witness. Sarah relayed her story to the police. She said she was in her room in bed, and then she heard the shower start, and a few minutes later, she heard gunshots. The door to her parents' room was closed, and nobody answered when she called out, and that is when she ran out of the house for help. Sarah's half-brother Matt was called shortly after the murders and was told that his parents had been found dead. He made the five-and-a-half-hour drive to be with his sister, arriving around 3 p.m., Sarah's first words to Matt were, they think that I did it. Matt tried to comfort his sister, insisting that the most likely suspect was Bruno. 
Sarah denied that Bruno could be the suspect, saying that Alan loved Bruno like a son. Matt thought that this statement was odd considering that Alan didn't allow Bruno in his house and did not want him associating with his daughter. Matt brushed this comment off as well and listened as Sarah told him about the events of the last 24 hours. Sarah told Matt that their parents heard someone in the yard around 2 a.m. that morning. She said that both parents went to check the yard before returning to bed and going to sleep. Matt would later say that he didn't believe this story for a second. His dad would have checked the yard with his dog, Sage, and he would have called the police to report a potential prowler. Sarah's statements were already not adding up for Matt, but he had other things on his mind. There were two funerals to plan, and he was wrapping his head around the enormity of what had just happened to his parents. As Sarah was a minor at the time of her parents' deaths, she went to live with her Aunt Linda and Uncle Jim, who were appointed as Sarah's legal guardians. Diane and Alan were farewelled by the community in a joint memorial service. The service was held in Sarah's school auditorium nine days after their murders. Hundreds of people packed the auditorium, some sitting on the floor when all the seats were filled, and more overflowing out the doors. This outpouring of love and support from the community shows how well-known and respected the Johnsons were, and shows what an impact their murders had on the community. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The police investigation began right away. They already had two suspects, and they wasted no time in questioning them. Police began their investigation by interviewing Bruno. After all, he had a motive. Alan and Diane had stopped him from seeing his girlfriend and had threatened to go to the police to have him charged with statutory rape, a charge which can carry a long prison sentence if convicted. However, the police had nothing on Bruno. There was no evidence to connect him to the Johnson house. It's said that he was rude when he was questioned by law enforcement, but being rude isn't a crime, and without solid evidence, the police had to let Bruno go. The next person on the suspect list was Mel Spiegel, the electrician renting the Johnson's guest house. 
Police had identified that the murder weapon, a Winchester rifle, belonged to him, and they were very interested to hear from Mel about how the rifle got into the Johnson's house. But when questioned, Mel had a solid alibi. He was away in Boise, over two hours away, at the time of the murders. He intended to be there for a week, and he had witnesses that placed him there. Mel admitted to investigators that his gun was not securely locked away in the guest house. It was kept in a cupboard that was easily accessible. With their two main suspects ruled out, police turned to the evidence that they were finding as they searched the house. In the trash can out front, police found two gloves, one latex glove for a right hand and one leather glove for a left. They also found a pink bathrobe that was covered in blood with bullets in the pocket. The other leather glove was found in Sarah's room. Investigators determined that the gloves belonged to Diane and they were usually kept in her SUV. Also in Sarah's room were two bullet casings, Sarah's keys, which included a key to the guest house, and a 9mm magazine wrapped in a bandana. A shower cap was later found in the plumbing system after it had been flushed down a toilet. While the police were gathering this evidence, Sarah's Aunt Linda was becoming more and more suspicious of her niece's behavior. Sarah seemed more concerned with her social life and getting her nails redone that had been cut during the evidence collection process than she did with grieving for her parents. The day after her parents died, she was at a volleyball game. When someone would become upset and cry over the deaths, Sarah would reportedly roll her eyes and act disinterested and disengaged. Now everyone grieves in different ways, and there is really no right or wrong way to process a loss. However, Linda was concerned about the level of detachment that Sarah had from the deaths. And on September 14th, less than two weeks after Alan and Diane were killed, she took her concerns to the police. The next month, on October 29th, 2003, the police had all the evidence they felt that they needed. They arrested Sarah Johnson and charged her with the murder of her parents. Before the trial could even begin, it had to be moved to another county. Alan and Diane were so well-known and well-liked in their community that there were a shortage of jurors who either didn't know them or didn't have a bias. Of the potential jurors that didn't know the Johnsons, too many said that they believed that Sarah was guilty or that they would be put in financial hardship by serving. Once the trial location was moved, a suitable jury was appointed and the trial could begin. When the state presented their evidence against Sarah, they presented the following theory. Sarah had removed the rifle that belonged to the Johnson's tenant, Mel, from the guest house at some point in time before the murders. It is unclear if she got it on the morning of the murders or if she took it earlier and hid it in her room. Sarah, who was an avid fan of true crime, put on a shower cap, a robe, and mismatched gloves to prevent DNA evidence from getting on her. She had thought through the best way to protect herself from the inevitable blood splatter that was to come. 
In this piece-together, protective ensemble, she got the gun and entered her parents' bedroom. Sarah approached the bed where her mother slept, aimed the rifle, and shot her in the head through the blanket, killing her instantly. Upon hearing the gunshot, her father exited the shower to go to Diane, but didn't get past the bath mat before Sarah shot him in the chest from around three feet away. She then left the room, leaving her father to bleed out on the bedroom floor. Sarah then ran from the house, screaming and banging on the neighbor's doors, begging for help, claiming that an unseen intruder had shot her parents. This theory was backed up by DNA evidence. DNA was found on the inside of the bloody gloves, and it matched to Sarah. There was also gunshot residue on the leather glove, and blood on the robe matched Diane and Alan, and Sarah's DNA was found on it as well. While you would expect Sarah's DNA to be found on her own robe, no one else's was found, making it unlikely that someone else had worn it. Forensics matched particles that were found on the t-shirt Sarah was wearing when the police arrived to particles that were on the inside of the robe, suggesting that she had worn it over her clothes before the police had arrived. Police found no forced entry into the house, indicating that the shooter was either already in the house or had a key. The prosecution had a long list of witnesses who were prepared to testify against Sarah. Her brothers, her aunts, a cellmate, and even Bruno Santos appeared for the prosecution. When your entire family and your now ex-boyfriend all testify against you, it generally doesn't look great to the jury. Bruno, who was briefly the prime suspect, wanted to prove that he had no part in the murders and did not support or encourage Sarah's actions. He figured the best way to do this would be to tell his side of the story. One of Sarah's aunts spoke of how emotionally distant Sarah was after her parents' murders and how Sarah wasn't interested in grieving for her parents at all. The prosecution brought up Sarah's turbulent relationship with her mother, as well as her unusual behavior after the murders. She spent the days in the wake of the murders focused on seeing Bruno and attending a volleyball game rather than being upset about her parents' deaths. Sarah's brother Matt also testified, and his testimony was matter-of-fact with little emotion. He described Sarah as a person who would lie if it benefited her, a drama queen who always needed to win an argument and have the last word. However, he did say that he loved his sister and did get emotional during that part of the testimony. Her cellmate in jail said that Sarah had let a few things slip in passing, such as telling them that she left the knives on the bed to make the murders look gang-related. In addition to the overwhelming physical evidence, Sarah stood to gain financially from the deaths of her parents. Their combined life insurance payouts totaled $680,000, not to mention the value of their property and other assets. Sarah could have started a new life with Bruno with the proceeds, and it is thought that the money was an additional motivator for her actions, 
The defense tried to argue that since the conviction would prevent Sarah from inheriting a penny, Matt had motive to lie on the stand about his sister and her actions. Matt denied this and refuted the defense's theory, saying that he didn't want any of the money. The defense tried to argue that since there was no blood evidence found on Sarah, there was not enough evidence to convict her. Sarah was examined twice on the day of the murders, and no blood was found on her skin, hair, or under her nails. There were also no fingerprints from any of the bullets or on the gun. However, if she was wearing gloves, there wouldn't be any fingerprints to find. There were some fingerprints on the weapon and ammo boxes, but they were unable to be identified. The defense, of course, tried to get the testimony from Sarah's cellmates thrown out. The defense argued that adult prisoners' testimonies should not be taken into account because as a minor, Sarah should not have been housed in the same cell as adults in the first place. The judge denied this motion, ruling that since Sarah was being charged as an adult, she could be housed with adults. A common technique at a murder trial is for the defense to present another suspect or another person who could be responsible. After all, if another person could be responsible, you'll have reasonable doubt, and juries are instructed to convict only if they are sure beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt. The defense tried to say that one of these other suspects was responsible, and whoever belonged to the unidentified prints on the gun was the true culprit. This mystery person, Sarah's defense argued, must be the person responsible. The defense asked the jury how else would their prints still be on the gun and boxes if Sarah had also fired the weapon. I think the answer to this is quite simple. Just because Sarah touches the gun doesn't mean that any other fingerprints that were already on the gun would suddenly disappear. Another suspect planted by the defense was the Johnsons' former cleaning lady, Janet Slyden, who Sarah painted as a disgruntled former employee. Janet had cleaned for the Johnsons on one occasion and was accused of stealing makeup and was let go. Janet reported no hard feelings about the dismissal. There was no evidence connecting Janet to the crime. This theory just didn't hold up for the jury. The trial lasted for five weeks. On March 16, 2005, after an 11-hour deliberation, Sarah was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. On June 30th, she was sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus 15 years for a firearms charge and a $10,000 fine, half of which was to be paid to her brother. At some stage in 2011, the Idaho Innocence Project picked up Sarah's case. The Idaho Innocence Project is an organization that works with people who they believe have been wrongly convicted of a crime. They help with providing pro bono legal representation and funding DNA and other testing on behalf of an incarcerated person. The project must be convinced of a person's innocence or that they have been wrongfully convicted. 
The project helped Sarah to appeal for a new hearing based on the fact that there was now technology for processing DNA and fingerprint evidence that was not available in 2003. This new technology may yield more evidence, which may lead to a different outcome for Sarah. Her first appeal was dismissed as it was not filed in a timely manner, which led to an appeal based on ineffective counsel. This was followed by an appeal based on ineffective counsel at the first trial because they failed to question the prosecution's fingerprint expert and because there were unidentified and unexplained fingerprints on the weapon and ammunition boxes. There was new evidence showing that the fingerprints belonged to a friend of Mel Spiegel, the tenant who owned the gun and ammunition. This new evidence was heard at an evidentiary hearing, and Mel's friend had a legitimate reason for why his fingerprints were present. He had previously shot the gun and had helped Mel move into the guest house. His prints could have gotten on the gun on either of those occasions. After this hearing, the rest of the appeal was denied. It was decided that Sarah's counsel was not ineffective, and the discovery of the fingerprints owner was not compelling enough of a reason for a new trial. Mel's friend didn't have a motive to murder the Johnsons, and he didn't have inside knowledge of the main house or of the Johnsons' routine that would be required to carry out the murders. And he had a reasonable explanation for his fingerprints being on the gun. Simply, this new fingerprint evidence was not enough. The jury convicted Sarah with unknown prints on the gun, and it was decided that knowing the owner of the prints would not have changed the original outcome at trial. There was also an effort to thrust the former cleaner Janet back into the suspect spotlight. It was found that Janet and Mel's friend, whose prints were on the gun, had lived in the same town for some time. However, further investigation showed that they did not live there at times that overlapped with each other. This coincidence of residence was ruled to be just that, and that appeal was denied in early 2014. More appeals came and went, all with similar reasonings. In 2017, an appeal that argued a life sentence for a minor violated the Eighth Amendment was denied. The Eighth Amendment is a basis for a lot of appeals for cases that we cover on misconduct, so you may already be familiar with it, but as a refresher, the Eighth Amendment bars cruel and unusual punishment for a crime. While it was argued that a life sentence was a cruel and unusual punishment for a minor, it was denied due to the judge taking Sarah's age into account at sentencing. During this same appeal, Sarah was also denied new DNA testing. As of now, her conviction stands and there are no major appeals or hearings in the pipeline that may sway the court's decision. Bruno Santos has been in and out of prison since Sarah's conviction on various charges. He was due for parole in 2018, however, I can't find any information of this being approved or denied. At the time of this recording, Sarah is serving her sentences at the Pocatello Women's Correctional Center. 
She's still working with the Idaho Innocence Project in an attempt to get a new trial. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you for listening. I wanted to give a huge thank you to Jess for her research and her writing in this episode. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you like the show, go ahead and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month level, you can listen to the show before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts with and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And if you have a case you would like to see covered, I recently added a case submission tab to my website. You can find the link to it in the show notes, and I really like taking suggestions from listeners, so if you submit a case, I will do my best to cover it on a future episode. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.